If you listen regularly to The Vincast, Australia's premier podcast about wine, you probably notice that I do speak with a lot of Australian winemakers. And a lot of the time, they are small, artisanal, uh, often sustainable uh, farms that uh, don't really produce a lot of wine. And therefore, the wines don't really get seen in the big retail chain stores. They often go straight into uh, restaurants and bars. So you might be wondering, how can I get access to those kinds of wines? Well, that's part of the reason that I partnered with the guys at Different Drop. Different Drop is an online wine retailer, and they specialize in Australian wines uh, from really up-and-coming, exciting producers using you know, alternative varieties sometimes, uh, using uh, alternative practices sometimes. And um, they've, they've curated a really fantastic list of products and winemakers, uh, made it really easy on their new website. Uh, and you can actually put together your own kind of mixed pack, or you can pick one of their ready-to-go packs. They've uh, also very kindly set up a little section on their website, uh, which is dedicated to guests of the podcast. So if you go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid winer, you'll be able to see some wines from former guests of the show. Uh, and also, when you go to purchase, make sure to put that code in intrepid wino, all one word, and the guys at Different Drop will give you a 10% discount. Uh, and make sure to let them and let me know that you actually have uh, bought some wines at Different Drop. Uh, and of course, thank you for supporting the podcast and thanks Different Drop for supporting so many guests of this very show. On episode 73 of the Vincast, I chat with John Verdeman an American artist who found himself in Georgia collecting polyphonic music and then finally started making his own wines under the Pheasant's Tears brand. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And do not forget that this weekend is the Rootstock Festival in Sydney at Carriage Works. Uh, I would love to see you down there. If you do listen to the podcast, please come up and say hello to me. You'll find me at the uh, the table of Gabriel Bini from Azienda Agricola Serragia. Uh, and um, you'll also find lots and lots of former guests of the podcast. Uh, so I do highly recommend going up and introducing yourself, tasting their wines, and let them know that you heard them on the podcast because um, I'm sure they would love to hear that. So I've got another fascinating chat for this week. Uh, I first uh, encountered uh, my guest in an article in the first edition of the Alchemy magazine. Uh, Alchemy, of course, uh, the editor, Josh Elias was on uh, the podcast previously and I was actually fortunate enough to have an article in that first issue and I read the article about uh, Georgian wine and this gentleman John Verdeman who uh, was an American artist who um, decided to to live in Georgia because he was so in love with the culture and the people and then he uh, was encouraged to actually start uh, making his own wines and to to use the traditional Georgian practices, which are very, very unique and have been largely unchanged for thousands of years. 
So um, I was really excited to see that he was coming back to Rootstock again this year and uh, and also that he would be in Melbourne to make some time, hopefully, to be on the podcast. And so uh, possibly one of the most interesting discussions I've had, one of, the f- one of the most fascinating stories I've heard on the podcast. So I really do hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you did, please uh, let me know and let John know. Um, of course, at the end of the episode, you'll find out how you can get in touch with both of us. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. John, thank you very much for making some time in your no doubt very busy schedule whilst you're here in Australia to be on the Vincast and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so I usually uh, start every episode by asking my guest uh, if they can remember what their first interaction with wine was that made them think about wine as more than just a beverage. Yeah, so I was uh, traveling to Russia for the first time in 1991. Yeah, and was 16 years old, and had tasted wine before that uh, of probably not very superior quality in the states. But I stumbled upon at 1991, the Soviet Union had just kind of fallen apart, mm. and I stumbled upon a ricazzatelli made with long skin contact from a village called Tibani in a shop. It was leftover stock from Soviet times. Yeah. Okay. Um, later, I found out exactly what cellar it was made in. But uh, it had an aroma and a color unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And I'd already heard a little bit about uh, Georgian polyphonic songs. So Georgia had this allure to me. And when I tasted that wine, I realized you know, there was a depth to it and a compelling quality, unlike anything I'd ever tasted before. And that was the first time I really started thinking about wine as potentially something different than just other alcoholic beverages. What brought you to Russia when you, when you were 16? Well, I was uh, interested in Russian literature. I was interested in classical music. And, uh, you know, there was also a girl that I had uh, fallen for who, well, okay. uh, who was half Georgian and half Russian. Oh, wow. Okay. Where, whereabouts in the States are you from? Did you grow up? Uh, originally Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. And then that's where I was born. And then I moved on to uh, Richmond, Virginia and in and around Richmond. Okay. And well, like before you went there, did you have any um, exposure to Soviet, I guess, or Russian or Georgian kind of culture or ethnicity at all? No, that was the first first time in '91, and I had uh, discovered Georgian polyphonic songs. I'd found a CD and was really, really fascinated by traditional Georgian polyphony. Okay, but in '91 you couldn't really go to Georgia. There was civil war. There were two secessionist territories. It yeah. Was, it was a really probably would have been difficult. This big sort of limbo situation after, you know, after the, the the end of the Cold War. Yeah, uh, it was, and there was one region called Apazia and another one called Ossetia that were uh, trying to succeed, trying to break away, plus a civil war going on all during that time. So wow. it wasn't able to get to Georgia until 1995. Now, for listeners who probably don't know, like myself, who don't know a lot about you know music, um, can you explain what polyphony is? Like what, what that type of yeah, music is? Yeah, the roots from, uh, the root linguistically is from the Greek, which means many voices at once. Okay. So basically it means harmony singing. Oh, ah, uh, okay. So there's multiple parts and Georgia has one of the most complicated forms of polyphony in the world. Mm. So it's a uh, traditional Georgian polyphony. You have one person singing the highest voice. They call it the first voice or top voice. Mm-hmm. One person singing the middle voice. And then you can have, depending on the complexity of the part, multiple people singing the bottom or the lowest voice. And the first top two voices are uh, specifically kept solo so that they don't have to synchronize their voices, but you can have a lot of improvisation. Wow. 
So you just found a CD and just kind of went, this music is is fascinating. I want to find out more about it. Yeah. I went to a, a record shop called Plan 9 in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. That sold used CDs. And, That's a great reference, um, Plan 9. Yeah. And I went to uh, the world music section and mm-hmm. one of the first CDs and the, on the shelf was called Georgian Folk Music Today. Mm-hmm. I bought that and ever since then I was dreaming to go to Georgia. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about interest in Russian literature. We're talking like sort of Dostoevsky type stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Dostoevsky okay. is one of my favorite writers, is still one of my favorite writers. Fantastic. So you tried this wine um, and it was from a particular part of Georgia. Yeah. Um, but it was pre full of the, the Berlin Wall type stuff. And it had, did it have much age? Yeah, it was probably, I don't remember the exact vintage, but I remember it being leftover stock from like pre-1989 and I bought it in 91, so it was three or four year old orange wine, mm. which uh, was still made even commercially in Soviet times. Divani is where our vineyard is based now, so interestingly enough, that very first bottle is where I ended up owning a vineyard. That's very interesting. And that's where these long skin contact whites are most known for okay. in Georgia. So um, you, I would, I'm assuming you ended up back in the states, and you continued to to study. Did you go to university, that kind of thing? Yeah, I studied painting. Actually, um, I'm a visual artist, so of course. I studied at the Maryland Institute College of Art to do my undergraduate work. Okay, and is that, is that in Baltimore? In Baltimore, exactly. Right, okay. And then went on from there to Moscow. I went back to Moscow to an institute called the Surikov Institute, which mm-hmm. is their kind of Russia's premier art academy. And I went at quite an early age there to study from 94 until 98. Did you find that you had a, uh, an affinity to a particular style of, of painting or like a, a period, for example? Yeah, so I like this ancient Georgian polyphony. I am also making wine in Quevery in this kind of antique method. Well, I guess that kind of reverence for tradition also carries over in my taste for visual art. So okay. I was looking for uh, a traditional art school where they took anatomy, uh, plain air painting, you know, studying from life uh, quite seriously. And in the, you know, mid-90s, art schools in the States were extremely going towards performance art, installation Mm, art, conceptual art. So any kind of uh, real serious representational painting was hard to find. You know, you took a couple of courses in it in your standard art education, but to specialize in that and really go deep was difficult. Mm. And Russia what? still had this kind of living tradition of realism. Yeah, okay. Why do you think that was, that, that people were just sort of moving away from, from the classics? I think that there was a certain... Um, maybe from the very beginning of the 20th century, there was almost a spirit of nihilism in the art world. That sure you know, destroy the old and create the new. Mm. And, but it, it went to an almost absurd place where the shock value of the art and um, art also became quite uh, a part of social commentary. And it, it always was to a certain extent, but, you know, at the art school I went to in Maryland, there was a strong kind of underlying message that you had to champion feminist issues, uh, mm. racist, uh, anti-racism issues, yeah. anti um you know, some sort of minority groups and, and I'm sympathetic to all those causes, but I think there's something about just studying light and how it moves through the branches of the trees. It also could be legitimate. It doesn't have to be social commentary. And 
I was more interested in kind of the emotional impact of an experience of beauty and how to capture that and pass it on. And mm -hmm. also just the craftsmanship of painting, you know, really how to demystify the old masters. I didn't want to look at a Millet or a Rembrandt and have no idea how that was created. I wanted oh, okay. to really kind of understand how that was constructed. This might sound a bit crass, but, you know, like I find that I walk, I walk through sort of modern um, galleries uh, and I'm just kind of confused and I just kind of go, okay, I, I, I guess this is art, but I'm just sort of like, I look at something, I, what, the, what I appreciate out of art is when I look at something and go, I couldn't do that. Right. And I know that sounds, that sounds probably really dumb, but I, well, I, I like looking at a painting and sort of saying, I couldn't do that. I don't know. I have no idea how they do that. And I, and I like to sort of enjoying it for what it is, but some sort of contemporary art, I kind of look at it and go, okay, it's it's very conceptual. And I know I kind of couldn't think of it and I don't look at it in the way that it is art, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, for me, the uh, if you look at the, the 20th century, you know, people, some artists like Mark Rothko said, I'm only interested in color or mm -hmm. Joseph Albers. You know, then you have uh, another artist like Joseph Boyce who said, I'm only interested in idea and thought. Mm -hmm. And then Cy Twombly says, I'm only interested in line and, and the structure of lines. Mm -hmm. And for me, all of that is good and well, but it, in all of those artists I mentioned actually respect to a certain extent their talent. But for me, that's an unraveling of what we historically called painting. Sure. So if you take a, a Velasquez, for instance, there's incredible sensitivity in color. Often there's great amount of idea and thought and psychological depth. There's composition. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there's graphic expression. So you have all these different elements that when they all come together, there's, uh, you know, mastery in terms of how the work was executed. There's mastery in terms of thought, in terms of understanding his sitter, understanding his times. Um, and so it's like all of those elements together, this common sum of that was called art. Mm. And then everything kind of unraveled so that people were taking bits and pieces of... And one kind of facet of what was historically called art. And to me, that's not very wholesome, that process. It's um, a little bit symbolic of other tendencies that happened in the 20th century. Yeah, of course. Um, so whilst you were studying, were you continuing to you know, drink wine? Did you sort of discover, did you discover a love of food as well? So in terms of food, uh, I'm a vegetarian and was raised a vegetarian. And being a vegetarian in Russia in the early 90s, I can uh, praise the school of classical music, of traditional painting, uh, interesting iconography and architecture, but know the culinary traditions of Russia, especially in those times, were not terribly exciting. Goulash. Um, I used to, well, I cooked my whole life and... So I would cook Thai, Indian, Ethiopian, Mexican food on a regular basis and myself kind of celebrated cooking. But aside from some really interesting fermenting traditions and vegetables, mm -hmm. Russian food wasn't terribly exciting and <laughs> still isn't terribly exciting. No, based heavily on potato, I'm sure. Huge amount of potatoes and cabbage cooked very in very bland ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what was it like living in, and studying in, in Russia? And, and what was it like? This is what, mid 90s? Yeah. I moved there to study in 94 mm -hmm. and then went to Georgia for the first time in 95. But um, I was 
It was interesting. It was kind of the exact opposite of my experience in Baltimore. And Baltimore, the Maryland Institute's this gorgeous kind of neoclassical building with marble columns and Greek casts everywhere and yeah. very impeccable. You know, wealthy people would rent it out to do their special social events. Mm. And the Surikoff Institute was an ugly building built in Khrushchev's time. Um, broken windows, dirty, you know, stray cats running around. Um, it was, uh, there was nothing illustrious about it except right. the actual knowledge that the teachers had. Yeah. And a lot of the teachers were very famous artists in their own right and had studied with some of the greatest masters uh, that ever lived in the 20th century. So you were stripped of all the kind of gloss and finesse and facades, mm. but we were getting really solid, real living education, which I found that really actually inspiring and great because you weren't distracted by any kind of posturing. It was all about the real thing. Was there a lot of oppression as far as art and, and creative expression um, under communist Russia? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've all heard about the purges and different intellectuals and creative people that were suppressed and all that indeed happened. Yeah. But it happened mainly for the artists and writers that went directly against the regime. Sure. And I'm not for any kind of political oppression, but we have to forget or can't forget that there were artists and musicians that, like I said, were traveling through the countryside, just studying the beauty of light moving across the landscape okay. or painting, you know, portraits of their wives and daughters or the interior of their grandfather's home. And so it was this, generally it was stuff that was politically motivated that was. Yeah. And yeah, okay. it's an interesting side. Um, uh, Stalin, we, we only hear the horrific things that he did, which there were plenty. Mm. Um, but one interesting thing when the fascists were, marching on Moscow, he actually created a list of some of the greatest musicians, dancers, and painters, and shipped them all off on trains to Samarkand, and wouldn't allow them to dig trenches or fight in the front lines. And when asked why he was doing this, he said, I will need the greatest figures of the art to spiritually rebuild my country, regardless of what happens after the war. Of course. And so if my teacher's teachers were all basically living in Samarkand, they had models, you know, nude models were sent to them. They had paints, they had decent food um, in the Wine. middle of wartime, you know. Wine and vodka, no doubt. Sure. I mean, of <laughs> course, they had some struggles. I don't want to paint in a rosy picture and where mm. there was mass hunger, it affected mm -hmm. them as well. But um, it was that kind of uh, interesting thinking. And Stalin particularly championed realism for the very thing that you had mentioned before, because he felt it was something people understood. Sure. So it was a way that he could also communicate to the masses. Sure. Whereas the conceptual art that started in the beginning of Russia, like Malevich and the suprematist movements, he felt was very elitist and appreciated by too few people for it to actually be a means for him to communicate to larger masses. Because mm. I, I can imagine that like, uh, in like the nineties, it, it possibly there might have been a little bit more um, freedom of you know creative expression, uh, and I'm just interested to sort of know if if that that you had sort of had that feeling as you were studying there, or less so. There was, but there was kind of a collision because there was a an idea of these repressed artists, so-called repressed, and some weren't as nearly as repressed 
repressed as they'd like to make themselves out to be, <laughs> that were trying to take over the um, the traditionalists mm. that had been more supported during the regime. Mm. And for me, I mean, the beauty of the Surikov Institute was uh, the Iron Curtain actually allowed 19th and 18th century traditions of realism to be ushered in to the 20th century mm. and kept more or less intact when in France and the U.S. and other places there had been art revolutions that took pride in destroying that which had come before them. And so although why there were people trying to create um, a certain replacement or upgrade uh, Moscow in the mid-90s to kind of mimicking the traditions that were happening in the West, that wasn't really seen too well by most of the artists studying at the Surikov because mm. the very thing that made it special was that it had held on to these traditions. Mm. And you could go and study conceptual art and installations anywhere in the world, you know, from Switzerland to Germany to London. And if you wanted to study traditional representative art, that was one of the last schools left that could offer it. The bastion. Yeah. And um, as you were living and studying in Russia, were you um, taking every opportunity you could to sort of find more wine and, and try more wine? Yeah, I was. But in the beginning, my my big lure to Georgia was, again, the polyphony. Sure. And so I started learning the language and I was attending concerts. And, and I love Georgian wine more out of an infatuation with Georgia sure. than a love of wine at that time. Just embracing the culture. Yeah. Uh, did you... Um, so... so what were your uh, first impressions um, being in Georgia and traveling in Georgia? So when I was finally invited to come in 1995, I was whisked away from an airport to a restaurant. And the restaurant had, you know, 15, 20 small tapas-style dishes on the table, most of them vegetarian, and these huge carafts of orange wine that were being poured and a very eloquent toastmaster interweaving toasts with poetry and... It was all just mesmerizing. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. You know, it was incredibly tasty. It was visually very exciting. Nourishing. People were very expressive. You know, Russians are beautiful people in their homes, but they wear kind of a a certain stiffness publicly. And here there was just this almost like Mediterranean jovial warmth that you found in Georgians. And about 10, 12 toasts deep into the feast, they... Toastmasters summon singers and the singers that happen to come in and there's a few hundred bands that, you know, entertain in restaurants in Tbilisi. And the band that happened to come in was the exact same group that had been on the CD I bought when I was 16 years old, way back in 1991. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And so I was, you know, I told them. You probably, you probably would have just wept. Yeah, this. I did. And I, I called out to the leader, uh, leading guy in Georgian and I said, Eldar, is that you? And, he said, yes, I'm Eldar, but who are you? Because I don't look Georgian. And I was speaking Georgian. Yeah. And I told him I was his greatest fan from the U.S. And he said, I couldn't have a fan in the U.S. I've never been there. And I said, yeah, but I bought your CD there. And he said, we only printed 300 copies, and all of them were sold in Berlin. So someone bought a CD in Berlin, took it to Richmond, Virginia, sold it secondhand to a shop that was more famous for kind of alternative skateboard you know, thrash rock. Sure. And uh, and I happened to be in the front row on the day that I walked in to look at the world music section. Far out. That yeah. is just, that's astonishing. Yeah. Um, 
And so what, what, what sort of happened after that? You, you finished your, your time at art school and did you go back to the States or did you stay in Georgia? So in 19, uh, 1995, I just traveled around the capital in Georgia. And then I went back to Moscow mm-hmm. and uh, came back again in 1996. And on my second trip, I was traveling through the wine region of Kaheti. Okay. And I went there specifically because I had to find a subject for this big kind of final, almost like the equivalent of a dissertation for sure, the art academy. Sure. So I had to do a large, a complicated stuff. painting. Okay. And <clears throat> what kind of fascinated me throughout my life was the question, does tradition inhibit or foster creativity? Mm. So Kaheti being the center of the wine region, I knew that uh, the whole family participated in the grape harvest. And that uh, the grape harvest brought all the the whole generation, multiple generations together. Mm-hmm. They gathered the grapes together. They crushed them together. And then they feasted together. And then they sang polyphonic songs together. Wow. Here for me, it was uh, a really good indication of how this uh, tradition that transcended time and went back for thousands and thousands of years was almost uh, a rite of passage for the art of singing, uh, cooking, making wine to be passed down from generation to generation. Mm. And even though there was a lot of kind of traditional structure behind it, there was also a huge amount of creativity and improvisation. Mm. You know, each family was proud of cooking the dishes a little bit differently. Each singer had his own way of doing ornamentation. Everyone that was making wine were doing experiments and trying things just a little bit different. So mm. it was actually a huge amount of creativity, despite the fact that it was a very kind of intense traditional culture. Mm. And so I was going from grape harvest to grape harvest, making sketches and writing down my impressions, as well as doing drawings and quick paintings of places. <clears throat> and it was during that trip that I stumbled upon Signagi, which is a small medieval hillside town in the center of the wine region. It's mm, the town in the same region where Tibani is, the village where I tried that first Georgian wine mm. in Moscow. So I <clears throat> I got up one morning. The first morning I was in Signagi, and the cloud cover was below the town, as well as below the peaks of the mountains and the Great Caucasus. So I was looking out from my hotel room, seeing all these little terracotta medieval homes, and then a sea of clouds, and then these massive, gigantic mountains, purple, covered in snow. And it took me about 10 minutes to feel like, wow, this is a place where an artist should live. (laughs) And because this was in the aftermath of all the wars, you know, there was a huge amount of houses for sale, really cheap. A lot of them had small orchards. And so I met a local cab driver, and asked him to find me a home that I'd come back in two weeks and I'd take two weeks to call all of my relatives and friends and see who could help me out with sending me a little bit of cash. Hmm. And I came back uh, two weeks later, bought a tiny home with a wine cellar, small vineyard and an orchard. And that's how my kind of commitment to Georgia began. And I had to go back to Moscow to finish my education. So between 1996 and 98, I kind of toggled between the two countries. But because my final masterwork was connected with Georgia, it gave me a 
professional excuse to come back and spend <laughs> a lot of time in Georgia doing research for the painting. The annual James Halliday Top 100 Wines were announced this past weekend. And I was uh, lucky enough to be invited to the inaugural Top 100 Wine Tasting here in Melbourne, which of course was a great opportunity to uh, to chat with some of the winemakers behind some of these top wines, but also to taste them. Now, if you don't know who James Halliday is, firstly, I would say, uh, what's wrong with you? Um, secondly, uh, he's the man behind um, Wine Companion. Now, Wine Companion isn't necessarily just about tasting notes and points and and you know top 10 lists of the year. It's also a really excellent magazine, which uh, has articles written not just by James, but also some of the best wine writers in the country. Uh, and it's uh, articles about Australian wine and uh, obviously overseas wines as well. Uh, and it's just a, a great resource to, to learn more about wines. Uh, you can also get access um, on the website, winecompanion.com.au, uh, to lots of articles, all those tasting notes, and, and a, a huge resource of information. Now, as a special deal for subscribers of this podcast, if you go to the Wine Companion website and uh, you subscribe to any of the packages, if you put in the code INTREPID30, they're actually going to give you a 30% discount, which is an amazing deal, uh, and you'd be very silly not to take them up on that opportunity because uh, you get access to so much stuff. So thank you very much, Wine Companion, for having me at the Top 100 Tasting, and thank you for your support of this podcast. And what what did you kind of envision your life would be there? Was it just as an artist or did you kind of was, – was there a, a kernel of an idea about wine in there somewhere? Well, I loved drinking wine, especially it was after my first trip to Georgia that I really kind of had tasted a lot of wine and a lot of different varieties. Um, but I, you know, I loved cooking and drinking wine as much as – anyone that was just passionate about that. I never saw myself professionally connected with it. And uh, yeah, I figured I would collect songs and make paintings. And mm. that's pretty much what I did from 1998 all the way until 2006. That must have been amazing. Do you, you travel sort of all over Georgia? All over Georgia, all different regions. Um, I met my wife in autumn of 1998 and we got married in 1999. She was a traditional, is a traditional folk music singer. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> traveling from village to village in the highlands and in the valleys, basically looking for real authentic polyphony before it had been kind of adulterated and prepared for the stage, started to realize uh, that the way people cooked in the villages and the wine varieties they had were so much more authentic and so much more expressive than what you could normally find in uh, not only abroad from, you know, Georgian restaurants outside of Georgia and wine that had been exported from Georgia, but even in the capital itself, it was like everything had been a bit sterilized or neutered that you found in Tbilisi. And the stuff in the villages was like just incredible, like, you know, full of life, full of energy, full of vibrancy. And so strangely enough, the music actually took me to the food and wine culture and it's got me thinking about um, that ethnography and the protection of Georgian traditions was not going to be only connected to polyphony for me. So what were you doing in terms of collecting the polyphony and, and I'm assuming you were painting and stuff like that? What, were you um, recording it to, to sell or that kind of thing? Uh, we never made money on the polyphony, but, <clears throat> but we did uh, make enough recordings and do enough tours 
masterclasses and stuff. We had built an archive. We have an ensemble called Zedashe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did enough tours and did enough CDs so that the singers could kind of, um, if not make money on it, at least make it sustainable. And uh, we now have an archive of some 3,000 audio and video recordings in a small music school for children that's above a restaurant. Uh, it's it's hmm. at the winery in Signagi. Um, <clears throat> but I supported myself through making paintings and selling the paintings. Mm-hmm. And again, living in rural Georgia in those years, you didn't need a lot in order to get by. So it was truly the life of an artist. And and did you feel a real sense of community as well? You kind of, you know, really, um, I guess, immersed yourself with with uh, with other people. Very much so. And those were kind of innocent years. Georgia hadn't really been discovered by the outside world, and a lot of people were still shell shocked from the wars. There had been a lot of loss, so it was kind of a healing period. And neighbors really stuck to each other and helped one another out. And, you know, I'd have neighbors come on a daily basis and bring me, you know, we cooked up a pot of this. Here's a plate for you. Mm. And we have an um, extra loaf of bread. Yeah. And we even had a a traditional bread oven installed in the yard and all my neighbors would come over and once a week we'd all bake bread together and make enough bread for the week to get by. And the whole day of Sunday was basically spent just, you know, drinking around the bread oven and making bread. And that that sort of is a pretty good representation of what your life in Georgia is like now, um, you know, because apart from making your wine, you also have, you know, restaurants and you do culinary sort of tours and stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, right now, currently, that's there's a lot going on. Um, the idea of preserving traditional culture still kind of permeates all the work that I do. But we have a wine bar and a wine restaurant in the capital, getting ready to open a third venue there. Um, and then we have the restaurant that's connected to the winery itself and five different vineyards with the winery. Sure. And on top of that, a small uh, operation called Living Roots, which basically helps guests come and have rare experiences connected with wine, culinary traditions, cheese, polyphony, um, the kind of blends real authenticity, stuff that would be hard to find just being a regular visitor without mm. someone with inside connections. And at the same time, you know, we'll travel to the top of a mountain and uh, have some rare, uh, like a variety that can only be found in one village of wine and taste through a bunch of different goat cheese and hear the same person that makes goat cheese play on a bagpipe that he made himself from mm. a goat in the evening, come back to a kind of proper hotel and get some rest. So sort of to show one of the things that you, you connected with initially was seeing everyone, you know, participating in the harvesting and then everyone cooking for each other and singing together, that kind of thing. That's, that's sort of what you're trying to uh, show to visitors, I guess. Exactly. And I'm also trying to use uh, tourism to encourage the rural villages to, you know, villagers not to migrate and to stick to the traditions that make their particular region different because in Georgia – You know, you have 525 different grape varieties, over 100 different kinds of cheeses. There's thousands of different kinds of polyphonic songs. And so for in 26 different ethnic regions. So if we're traveling to a particular region, you know, we want a wine from that village paired with a song from that village, paired with, you know, wild mushrooms foraged in that village. So it's really taking the idea of terroir to a whole kind of deeper level. Yeah, yeah. So 
Tell me now, I guess, a yeah. little bit about the culture of wine in Georgia and particularly winemaking because it is possibly the most unique and it's, you know, sort of well known, I guess, for having probably the oldest continuous winemaking tradition in the world. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Not to ask you too big a question, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 8,000 years of wine history in a few minutes. But uh, <laughs> sure, I mean... The more and more I think about it is I'm kind of come to my own conviction that the remarkable thing about George is not that they started cultivating the grapevine and making wine some 8,000 years ago, but that they never stopped. Mm. You know, Georgia was overrun by the Arab Caliphate, by the Persians, by the Mongols from the east, from the west, you know, Roman Empire before that, the Greeks, later the Ottoman Turks, and then it was... Uh, lopped into the Russian Empire and then, you know, over 70 years of Soviet experiment. And yet you still have over 400 uh, varieties that can be found and uh, another kind of hundred that are still being searched for that have been lost for the time being. But, but, they're, but they're documented. They're documented. We know what they were and we know where they were from and there's just genetic studies being done on, you know, if, where we can actually find them. Sure. And you still have wine at the absolute center of the culture. You know, it's the, it's the bloodline. And so the, the Quevery tradition of using clay pots buried under the ground for fermentation and storage. Um, now there's a revival of this worldwide, but it's largely been the work in Georgia that has inspired people like Josko Gravner, people like Paolo Vodopiewicz, a lot of these legendary winemakers. And we're seeing a huge amount of, People in France, Spain, Portugal starting to use clay pots. Some of them are using Spanish or Portuguese tinajas, some of them Italian anfora. But the kind of spur of the movement, I think, largely came from the fact when people started traveling to Georgia and seeing this unbroken tradition of using clay pots and tasting the results made people rethink, you know, what they could offer to wine versus cement tanks or stainless steel or oak. And the other <clears throat> really interesting thing about Georgian culture is just its context. You know, people don't just hang around and sip wine. You sit at a table where there's this heavily orchestrated feast mm. and there's toasts that compel people to talk about kind of the deepest mm, sentiments of the human heart, the deepest subjects and these incredibly uh, compelling, almost mystical polyphonic songs. Mm. And so the wine together with the cuisine together with the polyphony, together with the poetry and the toast, creates this elaborate textural kind of emotional experience that is very different than, you know, partaking of wine as a beverage, sure. even a very fine beverage. It's uh, it's almost more sacramental in some ways. Okay. So um, what was the tradition? I, I, the way I understand <clears throat> it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, okay. is that um, the family would have some vineyards and they would make their harvest and they would basically put the grapes into the cuvette because, you know, the fermentation would obviously um, preserve it for, for the year for the, until the next harvest and they would basically just sort of draw down from it throughout the year? Like, you know, is, is that sort of how it works? I mean, uh, basically you pick the grapes, you crush them. Uh, in the Cahetian style, you'd crush the whole bunch, even in the case of the white, so the skin, stems, everything would go in. Um, you'd fill the quivery about three quarters full and 
you needed that because during alcoholic fermentation, the gas would push the cap up to the top and mm. then you'd punch it back down and it would go back up and you punch it back down until the cap falls. And the cap falls when alcoholic fermentation ends. Mm -hmm. And then you place a rock or a piece of glass over the lips of the quevery, but you don't seal it at that point because the minimal exchange of with oxygen allows for malolactic to kick in. Again, spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And then once malolactic has finished, you seal uh, the glass or the rock to the lips of the quevery with kind of a snake, a coil of wet clay, mm -hmm. and you keep it like that all the way until springtime. And then you would open it up and rack it off the skins at okay. that point. Yep. And basically, as the skins have fallen, they've already kind of purified and cleaned the wine. Mm -hmm. But the wine is always in, in movement. There's no corners in a quivery. You know, it's egg-shaped. So as the wine is moving, it's always depositing the dead yeast cells or any other thing cleansing itself mm. over those six months, seven month period of time. Mm. And then when you open it up, <clears throat> usually around Easter, you can rack it into a new quivery and seal it up again if you want to continue kind of elevage or aging in the quivery. Mm. And how did you kind of start your, your winemaking story? Well, it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was definitely not planned. Ever since I bought my first house in Georgia in 1996 and had grapes, I needed to do something with them. So I started kind of doing small experiments with, with grapes back then. But in 2006, I was painting in a vineyard uh, in Kaheti, someone else's vineyard. And it was a hot kind of August day. And a young man drove by in a tractor. And it was an old kind of beat up, loud tractor. And he stopped about 20 meters from where I was standing and was yelling across the top of the motor, saying, My name is Gelapatala Shrili. Come to my home for dinner tonight. I have something important to discuss with you. You don't know me, but I know you. And I'm kind of irritated because I'm, I'm they're painting in nature, trying to have this emotional experience, and this tractor is roaring behind me. You're disturbing my calm. <laughs> exactly. And so I call out to him and say, Well, you know, with all due respect, why don't you turn off the motor if you want to address me? And he said, I can't, I have no starter and I'm in a flat place. So uh, <laughs> anyways, I found it curious and, but basically ignored it. I finished my painting and went home. I didn't look out. I didn't look him up that night. And a little bit of time goes by and I get a phone call from him. He found my phone number from somewhere and said, you know, I was waiting for you to come. You didn't come by, but I really respect what you're doing with traditional polyphony. And I want to give you a couple of rows of my vineyard. And I'm an 8th century vigneron, and I really think it'd be good for you and your wife and your children to have grapes to stomp and make in the traditional way. And I said, well, thank you, but I don't want a couple of rows in your vineyard. You know, I'm an artist, and I have my music, and I make enough wine as it is. And um, <clears throat> and he was persistent, and he said, well, I've already given them to you, so I can't take it back. <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, you know, it's the end of kind of summer holidays, and I'd taken my children to the seaside for the Black Sea, the opposite side of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And we're having a little vacation. I get another phone call from him saying, okay, harvest is going to begin in two days and, you know, prepare the vessels for which you're going to crush your grapes in. And I said, look, Gela, I can't do this. You know, I'm having a vacation with my family. Um, I really, with all due respect, don't want your grapes. And 
And he says, okay, well, they're going to come anyways. If you don't come and harvest them, then we'll harvest them and deliver them to your home. So we cut our vacation short, drive all the way back to Kaheti and meet a big, you know, dump truck that's full of plastic bags, full of crepes. And he's bringing them into my kitchen. <laughs> Juices everywhere, you know, flies everywhere. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is such a mess. And said, Gela, I don't even have a place to crush these. And he said, I thought of that. There's another truck coming up with barrels. And so he brings in these old wooden barrels. And the next week was kind of my lesson, master lesson in fermentation. And he would come every day and we'd stir the wine and he'd explain to me what was happening. And um, by the time this finished, you know, some two weeks later, I had couple of tons of young wine. And he said, now will you come to my house for dinner? And I didn't know if I hated this guy or loved him, but there was something intriguing about his persistence. Intriguing, but irritating. <laughs> yeah. And so I went to his home and he had a really beautiful family and uh, absolutely gorgeous wines. Like I, you know, over the years I knew had different families in different villages that I went to, to buy bulk wine in and um, felt that I developed kind of a, a good understanding for where the best wine could be found. And I never tasted a wine like this anywhere in Georgia sure. before. And so <clears throat> at a traditional feast and he's making toast after toast, he says, you know, great polyphonic singing only comes parallel to great wine. Mm. It's the elixir of the singers. And he said the two have gone hand in hand and that most of the wine leaving Georgia today doesn't speak Georgian and help me make an authentic winery where we use only the traditional vessels and we bring back a lot of the lost varieties. Basically repeat with me and wine, which you've already done with traditional polyphony. And that's how it all began. So that was back in 2006 and our first vintage was 2007. And so um, how many different wines do you make? Uh, it's hard to count now because in 2015, we pulled fruit off of a number of small vineyards that we planted four years ago of rare varieties. So they're still young vines. We'll see how they taste and turn out. But up until recently, we had about 12 different cuvee. And now we'll have more than 20. Wow. But small amounts. In some cases, it's only 300 bottles. And are all the wines made in the Kvedi? Everything's made in Kvedi. And all the whites have uh, the same maceration? No, a uh, huge variety from zero maceration to um, we rarely do more than three months skin contact now. Okay. Um, and, and where did pheasant's tears come from? It's an old saying, uh, also colorful story behind it, but I was listening to some old men that were playing backgammon and drinking shots of chacha, which is our form of grappa, mm. in the village square in Signagi and one man said to the other, the wine we had last night at Gaius's house, that was extraordinary. It was such good wine. You know, the guy said, no, that wasn't wine. That was Pheasant's Tears. And I, you know, had already met Gela and we were planning to do this winery, but I needed to come up with a name and design the label. And I called him. I said, what is this term Pheasant's Tears? What does that refer to? And he said, oh, it's just a silly old saying that the old folks remember. Um, where it means that only the finest of wines can compel a pheasant to cry tears of joy when it sips the wine. Mm. And he said, it's only found in our region of Georgia, and it's only something that the older generation still you know, say, which 
I thought was a colorful, interesting name, rooted to the exact place where a winery is going to be. Oh, it's a good representation of what you're trying to achieve. Mm. And and in terms of introducing um, Georgian wine and this Georgian culture to the rest of the world, how have you um, found that to be? Yeah, well, I I mean, when we set out to do Pheasant's Tears, we knew that we were going to use the traditional clay vessels, the indigenous varieties, and we were going to farm in a manner that was the old way, you know, it was grandfather's way. So I didn't even know back then that there was a natural wine movement. I didn't know that there was, you know, a, a sub market of, of people that were kind of defying the industrial processes. My idea was to make something authentically Georgian that was real and traditional. But when we started knocking on different doors and seeing who would be interested in possibly importing this wine, um, it was we were kind of grandfathered in through the back door as the real deal. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, natural wine importers and restauranteurs that really totally embraced it. And, uh, you know, the, the story of an unbroken 8,000-year-old tradition, you know, the history behind the clay pots and the fact that the wine is coming from a place where you know, people didn't rediscover through reading and through museums, but it was a living tradition passed on, you know, by generation to generation, um, despite in including just a huge amount of interesting varieties that no one had tasted before. So all of that created a lot of allure, and we probably got uh, more attention than we deserved. Mm. And and you are participating in a number of different kind of wine fairs around the world. Has that been a really great opportunity to to meet a lot more people and introduce people to um, the unique culture and the wines of Georgia? Yeah, I mean, the first uh, kind of serious natural wine fair we attended was the La Dibouté in mm -hmm. France four years ago. And that really, I think, kind of put us on the, um, uh, yeah, I guess... Put us in the light in terms of the natural wine world. Uh, on that trip on the way to La Dibouté, we met Terry Pouzelat, stopped by his place. He's a, a very well-known and celebrated winemaker from the Loire. He also has a small import company where he brings in non-French wines and distributes within France. And within 10 minutes after meeting him, he, he asked if he could be our importer for France. So we showed up at the Dive and Pouzelat's representing us and all of a sudden everything just like took off from there. And, you know, people like Alice Faring have been incredibly supportive and she's writing uh, a great book that's going to be published this spring. Um, yeah, I know, I know that she's made a number of trips to Georgia. So Yeah, she came out with a smaller book called Skin Contact that was yes. like the chat book version of the, the new one, which is called uh, For the Love of Wine, My Odyssey Through the Latin That Gave Us Wine. Mm. And that's going to be a larger version of Skin Contact that will be commercially available from spring forward. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time traveling through Georgia and being her driver and translator and so forth and helping her have the kind of experiences that transform me. And it's been people like that, you know, Terry Pouzelat in France, Eric Nairo in London, who's been really supportive, the guy behind Le Cave de Piran and... Alice Faring and all these figures that have a certain amount of clout and influence in the natural wine world that, you know, really loved us, loved our wines, loved our story and loved the experience we could give them uh, in Georgia. So it's been it's been an intense, you know, eight years, but a beautiful one.
And this is your second trip to Australia. You um you were here for the the second Rootstock Wine Festival in Sydney last year. Yeah. And um of course this weekend is uh is the third, and you're gonna you're back to uh, to show, hopefully even more people the the Pheasants Tears wines. How was the the first experience with Rootstock? Well, the first one was great. I mean, it was. I thought it was really uh, organized in an intelligent and creative way. You know, the festival started with all the uh, local growers being able to taste the foreign winemakers' wines and then vice versa. So before the crowd even came in, people got a chance to get to know one another and get to know one another's wines, and that really created a nice community. I like the fact that food was a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um I did feel the first time that, you know, aside from a serious contingent of Italians, it was basically Kiwis, Aussies, and Italians, and a very, very small sprinkling of anyone else. And this year, reading through the list, I think it's much more international. It's much more kind of an even spread. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's a lot of important importers coming in that are interested to see what the local winemakers are doing, a lot of wine writers and... I think it's going to be, you know, really a world-class event. And the whole idea of uh, the food being represented, being people that directly source things from natural and sustainable farms, as well as a new component of the kind of Aboriginal and Indigenous people's food tradition. Yeah. That's all super exciting. I mean, it's uh, it's unlike any natural wine fair in the world. It's its own thing. It's special. Mm. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, to trying um, all the the wines uh, up in Sydney because I'm going to be at the rootstock. And if you are listening to this um, on the day that it comes out, I do heartily recommend um, securing what I believe are very fast selling tickets to this weekend's uh, uh, festival. And definitely um, go and introduce yourself to John. Tell him that you heard him on the podcast and that you'd love to try his wines. And uh, and thank you very much, John, for, uh, like I say, for making some time in your schedule to sit down on the Vincast. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure. Um, are there ways that people can kind of find out more information about Pheasants Tears, websites, you want to do any social media type stuff? Uh, sure, yeah. We have a Facebook page, Pheasants Tears. You can find us on Facebook. Living Roots, my travel company has a Facebook uh Page, uh, myself, you know, John Werderman, also, uh, that's all on Facebook, and then pheasantsteers.com. Um, yeah, it's, so pheasantsteers.com can take you directly to my email or jwerderman at pheasantsteers.com. And can people still buy your art? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> strangely enough, I do paint, uh, and we have a beautiful complex in Signagi where we have a tasting hall restaurant down below and that also has an art gallery where my paintings are shown in Signagi. And then above that we have the traditional music school for polyphony and yes. then my painting studio. But uh, Lazare Gallery, uh, Lazare is my son's name and my father has an art gallery in the U.S. and you can see my work online there at lazaregallery.com. There you go. Well, I, I would hardly recommend people to actually just go to Georgia and visit John yourself in person. Sure. Welcome, Georgia. It's an incredibly hospitable place. In fact, the Georgians say that guests are sent to you by God, and the respect that you give to your guests is the respect you give to your creator. And you really feel it there. You know, there's a, the warmth with, with which guests are received and the level of hospitality. I've never seen it anywhere in the world. What a lovely sentiment. But uh, thank you again, and I I wish you um, a a wonderful visit to Australia. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to another episode of The Vingcast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And thank you, of course, to John for uh, that fascinating chat and uh, making some time in his very busy schedule to be with me on the podcast. Of course, as always, you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino is the Instagram and Twitter accounts. Uh, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vingcast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find the, uh, the little Intrepid Wino page. And uh, if you go to the Intrepid Wino channel on YouTube, you'll actually be able to see all of my Let's Taste videos where I taste Australian wines. Uh, of course, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast because that way you'll be able to get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. And you can do that on iTunes or the podcasting app, uh, or you can do it on Stitcher or Player FM. There's a whole host of different uh, apps you can use on your iPhone or Android device. If you do subscribe, I would really appreciate if you could leave me a rating and review uh, because it does uh, give me amazing feedback and also puts the word out to other potential listeners and guests. Of course, all the information, as always, is at intrepidwino.com, including lots and lots of different writings I've done in the past. You can read about um, some of my adventures traveling around the wine world. Uh, I look forward to having you uh, on the next episode. I've got lots more guests from Rootstock uh, that are going to come on the show, and uh, I look forward to those chats. But until then, bye. <laughs>